Amidst all that's happening lately, protests, political rallies, media wars, Facebook arguments, it's apparent we all want the world to change. Now, it's true we've wanted the world to change for a while, but lately it's just felt a little more palpable. I mean, who watching right now isn't done with coronavirus? I'm done with coronavirus. But as the brilliant Time Magazine article says, coronavirus isn't done with us. And then there's this idea that, um, you know, so many people are out of jobs, and we've talked about the fragility of economics currently right now. Good education is still out of the grasp of the most vulnerable. And because of the pandemic, the technological gap of accessing education has only exacerbated that reality. Justice feels more like a hashtag than something within grasp. Explicit racism is now on our feeds in more visceral ways with videos of murder. Subtle racism feels more pervasive. Reform feels all-encompassing like a nebulous. Reconciliation, both inside and outside the church, feels more utopian. And then on top of all of that, we just have the normal everyday stuff, like the battles with our own sin, our own addictions, longing for job security, trying to navigate calling, and then just wanting relational health. Change. We all want change. And if you're anything like me, I ask the question, well, what can I do, right? I don't want to just sit down. I want to be a part of the solution. What can we do? And it can feel overwhelming when any one of those issues that I just named, which, wasn't, which isn't all of them, feels like a mountain to move, every single one of them. And as a person of faith, as people of faith, we eventually get to the point, after we pass some panic or maybe some frustration, and remember that the solution to these problems can't come by human effort alone. And so eventually, Sooner, hopefully, rather than later, we finally ask the question, how does Jesus bring change? And today's text has a pretty surprising answer. Now, as people of faith, and as a person of faith, I, I'm pretty tempted to go down one course of thinking, okay? And it goes like this, you know, if Jesus is God in the flesh, if God is able to break into humanity, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God becomes human, and while he's here on the earth, we read that he healed people that, that people thought had incurable diseases. He's casting out demons that people thought were lost causes. He feeds 5,000 people with meager means. Like, that's the, brilliant the most brilliant example of an economy of surplus that I know. And as he's going about this journey, doing astounding work, we find that he takes the sin of the world and all of our sins upon himself and he puts them to death in himself on the cross. He goes to the tomb, and three days later physically defeats death and rises again. And then he ascends to the right hand of God. The Father is seated on the throne. All authority in heaven and earth is entrusted to him. And then he sends his spirit to dwell within his people to bring about kingdom change. I mean, Jesus could change all of this like that. And yet, with all our longing for God to move mountains, when it comes to God's kingdom breaking in, Jesus shows us that big change often starts small. Big change often starts small. And today we're going to see why that's actually good news. 
for us. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible, in the New Testament, that's like the second half, roughly, of the Bible, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. And in the beginning of Luke chapter 13, we find Jesus teaching, and he begins to talk about these 18 people who die because a tower in a town called Siloam falls on these 18 people. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, the reason these 18 people died wasn't because they were more wicked than anyone else. This is a catastrophe. 18 people, gone. And then we read a little bit further in chapter 13, and it's not by coincidence that we find Jesus on a particular Sabbath day in a synagogue, and he comes across a woman who's had a disability for 18 years. You're reading along, you're meant to connect these two. 18 people gone, This woman who has a disability for 18 years. And Jesus, he speaks life to her, and she's finally able to stand. She's healed. She's whole. And so if you're following Jesus in this moment, if you're reading and following the storyline, 18 to 1 feels like a losing score, right? It it feels a bit frustrating. I mean, if Jesus is all-knowing, couldn't he have just organized his schedule a little bit differently and gone and helped save these 18 people from this catastrophe? The woman who had the disability for 18 years, couldn't she have waited one more week and then Jesus would have also saved and healed her and it would have been a 19-0 record? I mean, what, what's healing one woman in one synagogue on one Sabbath day from one particular, particular disorder going to accomplish anyway. And Jesus, he picks up on the the angst in this moment, and he brilliantly says in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, he says, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Jesus is saying that God's kingdom, when it starts to break in, is like the tiniest of mustard seeds. And it grows into this massive tree and now creates a place of provision amidst a garden for birds to come and build their nests and so dwell in safety. And don't miss this. This is deeply tethered to the broader biblical storyline. A tree that brings safety in the midst of a garden That, for the thoughtful biblical reader, should bring us all the way back to Genesis, where God plants a garden and puts the two first human beings there, and at the center is the tree of life, the place of provision and protection and everlasting flourishing. And Jesus is saying when the kingdom breaks in, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to bring sustenance, it's going to bring care and protection in ways that we can't even fathom, but it starts in this minuscule mustard seed kind of way. Now, the mustard seed was well-known both in that day and and still today, and it's known specifically as this illustrative kind of nature of smallness. Now, I've got a bunch of mustard seeds here. Mustard seeds, I'm just going to try to pick up one little tiny one. I don't even know if you can see it, right? It's, I mean, it's insignificantly tiny. Just look how tiny that little sucker is. One little mustard seed is less than the tenth of an inch in diameter. 750 mustard seeds barely weigh in at one gram. And Jesus says that kingdom change, God's presence breaking in, is a lot like this mustard seed. 
And when you look at that kind of change, it can draw mockery. It can feel like it's foolish. It can feel like it's taking way too long, that it's not enough for the massive change that we need in this moment. And yet, Jesus says when God's kingdom is breaking in, it's a lot like a mustard seed. And this is why this is, this is so powerful. And commentators have noted you know, this again and again and again. When you look at a seed, the size of a seed doesn't determine the size of its final outcome. Because inside of a little seed is wrapped up life. That when it finally breaks through its shell, that first generative act can go on to extraordinary potential to bring life and life abundant. And this is what Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to know that God's kingdom makes big advances through seemingly small actions. God's kingdom makes big advances through seemingly small actions. That's not what I often think. I don't know if you're anything like me in this regard, but I tend to think that really big events with a really big budget, with a really big crowd, is the only thing that will really solve the really big issues we have in the world today. We are taught, we are trained, we have a cultural perspective that values bigger as better. And usually what happens in really big situations is that the powerful come with resources and are able to front load or to rather like support these big initiatives for a moment, a particular time. And once that event is over, when, not if, but when more help is needed, it's much easier because our guilt has been assuaged to say, hey, I've done my part. Somebody else can pick up the baton. And so they self-select out of the long-term growth of change. Same with the powerless. When it comes to something big or looking at massive change and needing some massive effort, usually the powerless say, hey, I don't have the resources, the time, the ability to bring the sort of massive change needed for this. And so they too self-select out. And so we find that no one is able or willing to carry the baton towards lasting change. But Jesus doesn't go about change that way. He doesn't tell us his kingdom breaks in that way. Instead, God's kingdom makes big advances through seemingly small actions. Now, maybe you're thinking, because I was wrestling with this too, that maybe the next point, this is where Gabe's going to go, is that, well, what this text is really about is the, the capacity for every human being, just one human being, to make a massive change. And that's true, okay? That's true. We, we are made in the image of God, and we have the ability, the capacity, to make big waves through one life. And while that's true, that's not the message of this text. That sounds a lot like a broader humanistic narrative, that if human beings in our own strength sought to bring about the change necessary, we can because of the human potential. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. Rather, what Jesus is teaching is that God's kingdom, working through God's people, makes big advances through seemingly small actions. It's the power of God. No matter how small the action, no matter how small or insignificant the person, no matter how small the influence, it's God's action who brings about massive growth over time. And Jesus is beckoning us to follow him. Just like he's exemplified for us back in Luke chapter 7 to not only proclaim the good news of the kingdom, but to proclaim and bring the good news 
of the kingdom. Now, does that mean that somehow Jesus is against big? No. And praise God, because sometimes he does work in truly big, astounding ways. But more often than not, it's through the seemingly small actions that he makes some of his biggest advancements. For example, you know, maybe some of you went down to participate in a peaceful way in the protests. Or maybe some of you went down to the prayer on truce event. Both of those are good in their own right. But if that's all we do, if it's limited to one event that has a big bit of fanfare around some sensationalism, and so it stops us from the quiet, seemingly overlooked, consistent work within relationship of serving our broader neighborhood, then we will never see lasting change. Not here, not now, and not until Christ returns. So Jesus, he's not against big actions. It's only that God's kingdom makes big advances through seemingly small actions. And so I want to ask you, if that's true, what seemingly small action will you take? Because listen, listen, listen. What Jesus does here is powerful, right? What does he do? He comes to one woman and he heals her after 18 years of a disability. And what's the outcome of that moment? If you go back earlier, before the passage I just read for you, and you dive into the narrative, Jesus heals this one woman on a Sabbath day in a synagogue. And two things happen alongside of her being able to stand upright. One, he now has a foundation to speak to how life breaks into the world. And then secondly, when he heals one woman, he reveals the cracks in an oppressive religious system. Because the Pharisees, the religious rulers, come and begin to badger and to condemn Jesus for the good work he's done. Jesus, through one act of healing, has revealed an oppressive religious system that has been pressing down on the Jewish people that Jesus has come to bring freedom from. One action of healing gives him a platform to speak, to change, as well as reveal the cracks in an oppressive system. A modern-day example of that would be the story of one Walter McMillan, who, with the help of his young attorney, Brian Stevenson, sought to combat the wrongful conviction of murder. He was on death row. Actually, he was placed on death row before there was any evidence submitted that he was the one who killed this young woman. He was arrested because of the color of his skin and on death row like so many others in that Alabama prison. Now the story I'm telling you in this particular moment is the one from the movie Just Mercy, which is based upon real life events. And Brian Stevenson, he fought to unearth the, dis- the corrupt system as well as the lack of evidence against Walter McMillan. The reason that Walter McMillan was arrested was because they couldn't find anyone else and they wanted to cultivate a false sense of security in that community that they would have in- indeed found the murderer when they hadn't. And so Walter McMillan, after the absurd lack of evidence is revealed, is finally pardoned and freed from prison. And because of that one action, that one action of liberation, 
It gave them a platform to reveal an oppressive system and that justice system in that particular county, in that particular state, as well as then gave them a platform nationally to, to talk about the brokenness around the whole process around the death penalty. One action of healing revealed the cracks of oppression that also gave them a platform to speak. God's kingdom makes big advances through small actions, seemingly small actions. So what about you? What seemingly small action will you take? I know as a church and as a church family, we have been in a season of lamenting and repenting in the midst of so much brokenness that surrounded us. What would it look like for us to not just make this a season, but to make it a habit? To talk about prayer in such a way that we are consistently, rather than just on moments of sensationalism, but consistently committed to the path of justice, lamenting the brokenness of this world, repenting of our complicity, complicit actions involved in it, and actually pursuing justice. What would that look like for that to be a habit and not just a moment? For some of you, when, it, when you think about these seemingly small actions that you can take, one thing that you could do, we've been talking about generosity. Pastor Ben talked about generosity la last week, and that's really good. That's a way in which we think about our budget and how we can leverage our resources to support other organizations and other good work. I would say another way to do that, here's a seemingly small action, is to add to your concept of generosity your fra a framework of investment. Investment. How every dollar you spend is actually a vote for the kind of society you want to see come about. What businesses are you supporting? Do you know the minority-owned businesses in our community? And I don't mean just going once off as an event, but getting to know names, building relationships, getting to know, you know, Taco Tuesdays or the various, like, various avenues that they have special deals so your family can also benefit on the relationships as well as supporting over the long haul the various businesses in our communities. Build relationships and add to your generosity a framework of investment on where you spend your everyday dollar. Now, some of you are avid readers, and that's excellent. We need to be thoughtful and digging into good ideas. One thing you can add to your book reading is to do that in community and so that you can stir one another up to love and good deeds, right? I know there have been many of you who have been involved in the book studies around the book White Awake. Excellent. If you're not in one, maybe you start one and you do it over Zoom or you could do it in one of our local coffee shops around the area and help support the good work they're doing as businesses are slowly reopening. For some, it might mean, right, that you're not just thinking through protesting or praying or calling your representative to allow your voice to be appropriately heard within our society, but it also might mean adding volunteering. I know as schools are going to be reopening this fall in some capacity, everybody is looking for thoughtful folks who will be committed at least over a semester to help care for the children in our downtown. I know when it comes to Crossroads Academy, the partnership we've had for a while now, they would love it, love it, if you gave like one day a week, like an hour, and you read with children in the elementary school. One day a week for a semester. I know Mission Adelante, who also values advocacy, would love it if you showed up once a week to work with one of the programs, whether it's teaching English as a second language or any of the other youth programs that they have available there, volunteering once a week for a semester. 
You see, we need to be thinking through what are those seemingly small actions, how we can be building relationships. Some of you have been posting some thoughtful stuff on social media as you've been reading and digging. For some, that might mean adding a courageous conversation. That doesn't mean bullying someone or shaming someone, but instead inviting someone into a conversation that feels risky around race, around privilege, around faith and their walk with Jesus or not, and listening, diving into conversation, asking what resources they're using and where's the foundation for their belief and their worldview, and then allowing for some opportunities to raise some alternatives and to engage in the long walk of conversation. You see, there's a lot of seemingly small actions we can take and so see God's kingdom make big advances. What seemingly small action will you take to bring healing maybe to just one that can also simultaneously reveal the cracks of broader oppression we experience in so many ways? And then once you start taking these steps, keep going. Because the mustard seed doesn't become a tree overnight. It keeps going and it keeps growing. It's taking these steps one after another. And someone who understood this all too well was Rosa Parks, someone who is an extraordinary catalyst in the civil rights movement. When she refused down on that bus to give up her seat to a white man, even though she wasn't in the white section, there happened to be a lot of white folks on that bus, and she refused to get out of her seat so that a white guy could sit down in her seat, she chose to not give in. And I love what Rosa Parks actually said about that moment. She says, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. They always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. She goes on to say, I was not tired physically or no more tired than I was at the end of a working day. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. And so she took a seemingly small step and it actually involved her staying in her seat. And I tell that story for a couple reasons. One is because that's not the first time she had issues with that bus driver, James Blake, okay? The first time she had issues with that bus driver was 12 years before that, on a very cold afternoon, or very cold day. She got on the bus, and it was the rules of that bus, if you were a person of color, to pay on the front, get out the front door, go to the back door, and then re-enter so you can sit in the non-white section. But it was so cold, she paid in the front and was gonna just walk back to her seat. And the argument between her and the bus driver became so intense that he grabbed her by the sleeve and she refused to give in and so instead chose to just get off the bus in a first act of protest then and there. She took steps. She kept taking steps again and again and again. And may the same be true for us. May we keep going in these seemingly small actions. And, and maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, but yeah, Gabe, but how long do we have to do this? Is this enough? Of course it's not. It's not enough. And I'm not going to tell you like the really fun story about the girl who goes on the beach and she's throwing starfishes in the ocean, right? And it's like, well, it matters to that one and it matters to that one. And that's a beautiful story. No offense. But like, that's not what drives us in this moment. As people of faith, for millennia, we should have and continue to have this holy discontent at injustice, lamenting over brokenness and how it continues to dismantle 
peace for those who have a different amount of melanin than someone else. You see, there's a day coming when Jesus will make all wrongs right, and he will make all aspects of that wrong righted. And his kingdom will come in full force, but that's not today. Today we look for every opportunity, those seemingly small actions, longing for God and the power of his kingdom to actually make advances. Because that's our calling. Because God's kingdom makes big advances through seemingly small actions. And you want to know how I really know that takes place? Because in the first century, a nobody from a nowhere town by the name of Jesus from a town of Nazareth that no one saw coming. No one was anticipating except for those who had the eyes to see. And he was the son of God. That's how God chose to come into the world in a seemingly insignificant way. And then when he went into Jerusalem, he didn't come on a war horse covered in gold, covered with the glory of all of his kingdom. He came in on a donkey. And what covered his path was palm branches. And when he finally was in Jerusalem, when he talked about greatness and power, he said those who have the most power and those of the highest authority don't domineer, they don't bully, they don't badmouth. They serve humbly. And then when he went to bring freedom, he didn't force it, he dies. And a crown of thorns is placed on his head. A throne looks like a cross. And he's buried in a borrowed man's tomb for a temporary stay until three days later he rises again. And once again, and once again, and once again, it is the seemingly insignificant individuals, the overlooked, who when they suffer for Jesus, make some of the biggest impacts and biggest advances for his kingdom. Such that even a woman who had been hunched over for 18 years that people had written off as a lost cause, now could stand up straight, look Jesus in the eye, and tell the world what Jesus had done for her. And I can't help but imagine the waves she made where Jesus had her. This is why it's good news for us. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you bring to the table, we all get the opportunity to participate in kingdom change. What will you do? Lord Jesus, it's astounding that you condescended to us and you dwelt among us. And for 30-some years, you, were, you had a normal vocation and you lived life and you cared for those around you. And when you did enter into your public ministry, it felt like such a seemingly insignificant rabbi. And then you went about calling the overlooked and caring and healing the written off, bringing dynamic kingdom change the size of a mustard seed. And now, God, as we look over history, we see how you've worked through your church time and time again to bring massive change and to also, and to also create a space for flourishing and for nesting and for wholeness that makes it, makes it all taste a little bit like the garden in the very beginning. God, empower us. God, guide us. 
by the Holy Spirit, give us the, tra- the strength to take these seemingly small steps and these seemingly small actions. And God, in your kindness, may we begin to see change. Bolster our hope as we look forward to the day when you will return and you will finally make all wrongs right. We trust you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so now we turn to the Lord's Supper, a common meal that in and of itself feels seemingly insignificant, with common bread and common juice, but points to something beyond what we can fathom. You see, here in common bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us, and in common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to partake in the Lord's Supper, now would be a perfect time to do that. And if you need a couple minutes to gather some elements together, we encourage you to pause at this moment and and gather those together. Maybe gather those either in your home or your loft to do that and to partake together in remembrance of him. But before we do, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, take and eat.